right. <coughs> so, in life, we all have disappointing experiences, uh, particularly uh, experiences that are disappointing can feel traumatic. If we suddenly experience someone who's very much uh, of, provides us with security when we're young, if they suddenly withdraw security, if they become shaming or blaming, or if they become um, rejecting. And these can be experienced as... Um, these abandonments uh, can be experienced as real traumas. We tend to think of traumas as just involving violence or involving um, uh, really uh, life-threatening situations, but what we forget is that for an infant, for a child, any uh, event that seemingly jeopardizes the the child's relationship with its parents is traumatic. Because an infant, a child, knows that... um, their entire life, their survival, depends on maintaining a secure relationship with their parents so or their caretakers, those who are around. And then as we move into the world, we uh, also depend somewhat on our relationship with groups, schoolyard kids, teachers, additional family members. So we widen into a larger network of dependency with others. And um, so if we have a traumatic event with where we feel very vulnerable and those experiences that happen when we're very vulnerable, uh, when we're very young, almost invariably fall into that category, we develop what's known as sometimes... Um, <coughs> false or problematic associations where anything that reminds us of that original trauma will re-trigger us. So I'm going to give you an example. I like to use personal ones. Um, uh, I grew up with a very tall, my dad was six foot five, he was a Russian, and we, <clears throat> and he was a Russian immigrant, and uh, he, when, in my, when I was a very young kid, he was a very violent drunk. And so um, I uh, have made, when I was young, an association between really tall uh, guys who are aggressive and uh, it all even slightly confrontational with this, this feeling of fear. And so when we make these associations that remind us of the first traumatic event, anything that reminds us later on in life, these triggers, we create an underlying state of anxiety. I'm vulnerable again, just like I was when I was a child. And so what we will develop are either coping strategies, which are um, ways of relieving the anxiety that we feel later on as an adult. Uh, Another example might be, when we're young, uh, I have a 
a friend, and she, um, um, her father disappeared from the family very, very young. And so she's developed these coping strategies that whenever she feels abandoned or rejected by a man that arise, that will try to relieve the anxiety. Because even though she's now an adult, um, <coughs> and she can survive, and she's not in any danger when a relationship breaks up or a man is in any way rejecting or dismissive, it brings up the original terror of being a four-year-old whose father just fa disappeared from the family. Does this make sense so far? So anything in our adult life that reminds us of an early trauma is a trigger. And triggers are very often not dangerous. They just remind us of an, a, a situation in our past that were frightening, that was frightening. So we develop um, coping strategies. The Buddha had a term that's very similar to this known as anusayas, which were ways, he said, of seeking false refuge or protection when we felt threatened. And they, one of the interesting things the Buddha noted is that um, any behavior that we repeat very often, we can begin to confuse with our core identity. We can begin to believe that's really who I am. We can feel stuck with these coping strategies. Now, <clears throat> there's two types of coping strategies, and they're very distinct. One kind of coping strategy is the kind that is effective. <coughs> and you can guess the other kind. For a moment, I'm going to talk about the effective ones then I'm going to drop them, talk about the unaffected, then I'll come back. Effective coping strategies are ways of relieving anxiety, not just for the short term, but for the long term. And also an effective coping strategy is uh, a way that decouples the trigger from the unnecessary fear that arises. So if I have a... Uh, Another example, is my, as I used this weekend, um, one of my dad's insane projects was um, <coughs> he built a boat in the living room out of fiberglass, which he insisted that we get on, and it sank immediately into Long Island Sound. <laughs> and um, <coughs> So I have a lifelong association of anybody who sails... <laughs> Boats, you know, any of that is like I associate with like fascism and <laughs> and uh, and monstrosity because it just reminds me of my dad. I just I'm, I might you know might be the nicest sailor in the world who's just talking about his catamaran, but I will just see a, a, a Nazi it, you know in drag unless I'm care careful. So. Um, we make these false associations. And so a good coping strategy would be something that would, if I was having to go on a boat, God forbid, I, I really, I don't mind big, huge things, but small things with fucking sails, fucking hate. But if, if I had to get on a boat with a sail, it would be a strategy that would allow me to actually 
face that trigger and to walk through the and relieve the anxiety. It would decouple the trigger with from the fear that resulted. So <clears throat> they all have an element to them of um, relieving anxiety, but also uh, addressing the underlying problem. Unfortunately, in life, if we experience real um, traumas very, very early in life, the earlier in life we experience a rejection and abandonment, a severed tie with a, a, a caretaker, then what will happen is we will be more drawn towards defense mechanisms or uh, uh, negative coping strategies. And defense mechanisms essentially, unlike uh, good, safe, secure coping strategies, defense mechanisms tend to do a couple of things. They only work in the short term, not for the long term. But boy, do they really work in the short term. They really, really get rid of the fear. Um, the problem is, is that rather than uh, de-triggering those associations or or relieving the trigger of its of the effect that it has, they actually make it worse. They actually legitimize the fact that the trigger is something that's um, that's dangerous. And of course, all the Buddha's teachings on <coughs> craving, aversion, delusion. Uh, go into how by constantly uh, seeking escapes from uh, inevitable disappointments, frustrations, setbacks, rather than detriggering and allowing us to face things that we need to face, our avoidance strategies make things far, far worse. So um, the Buddha's strategy and the strategy that um, I'm advocating is about uh, developing coping strategies that allow us to face our fears, to face the, in, the inevitabilities that cause us anxiousness, but, but that we can actually learn to live with. In the Buddha's teaching, the inevitable sufferings we're going to face are old age, sickness, death, lamentation, grief, despair, not getting what we want getting what we don't want, being stuck with the unlovable people and losing lovable people. Uh, he also, in the Daily Reflections, talked about uh, reminding ourselves that not only are we subject to old age, sickness, and death, but that we are also going to lose everything that's dear to us. So we're going to experience frightening things in life. But let's talk about some of these coping strategies that don't work. I'm just going to give you a list of a few and see if you can recognize yourself in any of these. So the first is dissociation. And that's the tendency of going off out of the body, out of awareness, into a fantasy world where we're no longer aware of what's happening when we're in a situation that's triggering us. So sometimes we might be in a situation where we need to speak up for ourselves, but because in our lives as young kids, when we 
asked for something from our, our caretakers, they inevitably rejected us. Just the need to speak up, ask for ourselves, you know, um, you know, be assertive, can create uh, this flight. Uh, if people, when people have been raped or victimized in crimes, or they very often will go off into uh, dissociative flights, which can definitely be one of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. So dissociation is simply the tendency to lose awareness of what you're feeling in the body and key sensations in the world. It's basically seeking shelter in, the, in, a, in an imaginary fantasy, in the safety of thoughts, in the safety of, of another world. The next one is compartmentalization, which is a really fun one. Compartmentalization is where... In certain areas of our lives, we're very, very uh, strict and controlling and demanding, but we have this one little area where we act out in as a way to relieve pressure. So there's certain, we can be very, very regimented and um, we can be people who are, you know, um, uh, fastidious, but when we experience anxiety, over something, when something triggers us, then we'll run and we'll binge eat or act, or, or act out via sexual compulsion. So it's like this little secret thing that we do that we, the rest of our lives we don't acknowledge and we keep very separate. And some people, you know, it's, it's, it, some people cut themselves. Uh, it's, a, it's a way of focusing awareness. And even though cutting seems like it would be very painful, when people do do it, they pull their mind away from the fears and the triggers and they just are focusing on one little area of the body and they're acting out. And <clears throat> so that's, that's one. Uh, anxious avoidance, I'm sure we've all, we all know this one. It's simply avoiding anything that, is, that triggers you, no matter what, going to any extreme um, sometimes, uh, tonight I'm just using the theme of uh, eating disorders, but eating disorders are very often preoccupied with body image, and so they'll avoid certain foods out of the fear of gaining weight, especially people who feel that their self-worth is tied to their appearance. Then they will develop this really dysphoric relation. So... Here's a good one. I love these, these lists. They're fun. So, um, sublimation. Anybody know what sublimation is? It's my favorite. Sublimation is when there's a part of our life, an impulse or an urge that we find really, really uncomfortable. And so we channel that into... Um, we channel that into other areas that relieve the tension. A famous one is um, sexual uh, urges that people feel they can't act out on. So very often they'll channel it out through physical activities, rocking back and forth, extreme exercise, 
uh, other kind of repetitive body movements can be sublimated sexual energy. And um, I've never, I've never liked most, almost all American sports to begin with. But one of the funniest things I've ever seen is whenever there's like uh, a baseball game on a television set, they'll show a manager in in a in a dugout rocking back and forth, <laughs> and I'll try to ruin my friend's time by going, "Oh look, he's sublimating his sexual tension into a rocket." They're going, "Fuck you! He's not doing that. He's just he's just really into the game." No, no, no. <laughs> That's a sublimated desire to masturbate right now. <laughs> He's finding his lack of control over the game and the outcome to be a dysphoric experience, and he wants to masturbate right now. <laughs> I really, that's why I never get invited, thankfully, to watch it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> another classic example of uh, sublimation sadly, is uh, anorexia and bulimia. Very often, uh, teenagers who grow up in families that exert far too much control over teenagers' lives and exert themselves needlessly into decisions and don't leave a feeling of control in teenagers' lives will create a sublimated need to find control anywhere so where do they do it? By starving themselves or through the one area they can have and exert control in their lives, which is uh, controlling body weight and image through controlling and restricting how much food isn't taken, is taken in. Um, compensation is the tendency to... Uh, when we feel disempowered, unrecognized, unloved by key people in our life, when we feel that we are unnoticed or that the only way we ever achieved love in childhood was by performance and by accomplishment, but that we weren't inherently loved just for who we were, um, those people will grow up and seek um, anytime they feel uh, anything that reminds them of that lack of self-worth, any state, any experience that makes them feel um, uh, unloved, they will compensate by trying to achieve in the world, focusing others on their career, how much money they have, uh, objects they've accumulated, stuff like that. So it's, look mommy, love me, love me, love me. Which can be a little bit weird if you're both in your 40s and it's your friend and you're like, okay, <laughs> you don't really need to do this to get my appreciation of you. <clears throat> this is now, the next one is about my family. Uh, intellectualization, which is basically the tendency of whenever we feel a difficult emotional experience to not acknowledge the feelings in the body, but instead to uh, try to intellectually get rid of it um, or focus on something that will get us away from it. For instance, uh, I had a friend who went through a traumatic, I think, divorce for him because it reminded him of his parents' early split and his 
mother's eventual disappearance from the family. So what happened was, when he got divorced, the only way he could talk about it was by citing the statistics of divorce in the U.S., but never acknowledging the extreme loss and separation that he felt. So um, all of these things have in common that, A, we're not mindfully present, acknowledging the feelings that arise. We're seeking a way out. We're looking for a relief, something that will pull us out of feeling what's present, but also relieving it. And instead, we're trying to completely eradicate the tension, the stress, by, by a behavior that focuses attention entirely elsewhere. Sublimation, acting out in a different realm, intellectualization. Another example of intellectualization is in my family, whenever somebody would be given a dire diagnosis, rather than uh, discussing openly what this loss and mortality would mean and our feelings about life and our feelings about death, my... uh, my parents tended to <coughs> just needlessly focus on all the obscure, unlikely possible treatments <coughs> right up until death's door, which is why I've, done, I've addressed that in my own life by, by doing hospice work and hospice training because in my family, acknowledging death was such a, a no-no. So um, that was one of my coping strategies to... Uh, to work with that, which is not avoiding talking about the feelings that arise when um, any kind of mortality issue happens. So I think you get the idea. All of these, all, if you, you don't have to memorize this list or even know it. You just have to ask yourself, when you find yourself driven compulsively by a behavior, um, <coughs> a couple of questions. Does it, A, relieve the stress and tension in the long term, or is it just a quick fix, and then do you wind up again feeling nervous, anxious, out of sorts? Is there any shame afterwards, or a feeling of... of, of uh, very often one kind of coping strategy is addiction, alcoholism, drug addiction, shopping, gambling. So if you find yourself just regretting the uh, behaviors that we seek out. Um, And finally, just noting that any time that we have a behavior that doesn't have us focus and address and acknowledge the underlying feelings that are present, that doesn't uh, re-address and help us face the... Uh, the triggers that are causing the anxiety, anytime we are trapped in avoidance, escape, denial, uh, sublimation, running away, changing the subject, anything that we feel we can't be with, then we're, we're in the, the presence of a uh, defense mechanism. So the question then becomes, what are the healthy ways of constructively coping with stress in our lives, especially those things that trigger us. Um, The first and the most important is seeking support. Having people with whom you can safely say, I 
have to speak in front of people and I'm terrified. Even something that sounds like something that everybody should be able to do, very often we'll, we'll try to conceal those and that creates even more inbred trauma around it. So if, for instance, it's uh, having to go out on a date for the first time in years, having to, terif- being terrified of going on a job interview, being terrified of asking for help, being terrified of asking to borrow money when we're broke, being terrified of, um, of needing any kind of help from other people. Uh, we, the list goes on and on that we can feel uh, a sense of vulnerability uh, and uh, fear around. And the most important thing to do is to find people with whom we can go up to them and we can share the emotional anxiety that's present. And rather than have them try to say, well, you know, uh, try to fix it for us or solve us or simply, you know, make it go away, just to have somebody else say, I get that. Yeah, I, I understand that. I know what fear feels like. They might not feel the anxiety in the same, with the same trigger. In fact, they probably won't. But if you have a friend who's skillful, they'll be able to hear that you're, te- you're scared, that you're frightened, and they'll be able to say, that's okay. And when somebody allows you, gives you permission to acknowledge your fears, acknowledge the anxiety and stress that's present, it actually, studies show, makes it that much more bearable to, um, to be with. Now, I think this is why the Buddha, again and again and again, stressed the importance of the Sangha, stressed how important it was to have wise spiritual friends. In all of his lists, he talks about seeking out people who will not shun us, will not drop us, who will not run away, who will provide both uh, people to, you know, models to aspire to, but at the same time, he says, people who can create a safe environment. And that's really what we're looking for. A second strategy is um, incrementally, gently re-exposing ourselves to those triggers that we're terrified of, but doing it as slowly as possible and each time rewarding yourself. Now, that doesn't mean rewarding yourself with an Oreo or a Reese's, but it means feeling really good, being proud, acknowledging yourself, finding people who will listen when you say, hey, today I did something that was scary. It might, have, it might simply have been, you know, you didn't go all the way and ask for a raise, but you might have asked for Friday afternoon off at your job. And that alone might have been, that incremental step might have been terrifying. Every time we take um, a risk, we incrementally expose ourselves to a situation that's frightening for us, that reminds us of an early trauma where we didn't get our needs met, We really have to take the time to really feel good about it. I find that um, a really strong practice is um, embodying behaviors, things that bring awareness into the body again and again when we're feeling stress and anxiety that don't try to get rid of the body, that try to dissociate, but in fact bring us into the body but relax the body. That means meditation. 
So if we're feeling really stressed out, finding a comfortable place in the sun, relaxing, stretching out the out-breath, relaxing the shoulders, the belly, the jaw, the forehead, really relaxing the body. Another practice that works is really, really gentle yoga. If I'm feeling stressed out about something I have on YouTube, these links to these embarrassingly gentle yoga things. Just so embarrassing. They're like, move your foot an, a, an inch in front of the other foot. <laughs> and hold, hold and sustain, breathe. Hold, sustain, breathe. I'm like, what the fuck? I'm just standing here. My one foot's just an inch fucking in front of the other. I mean, come on, how... You know, patronizing can you be, but it's good. It's good because you're because these these like they call it yin yang yoga. What the fuck do they call it? Yin yoga. Yeah, you do this shit, you feel great about yourself. You're like they're like gently tilt the neck forward, not not too strenuously. I guess I'm in better shape than I thought. I can do this. And then, and then it's great. You do that for seven minutes, and then they're like, the, then there's the next 20 minutes of savasana. We're like, now reward. You know, get a, get a fat. You've really worked, worked. Now release, lie on the mat. You know, and like get you know people to fan you with this omelette. You know, you've really exhausted yourself this time. I'm like, okay. <laughs> But it works for me. Uh, um, <coughs> service. Any form of taking care of others takes the, uh, the um, focus off of ourselves. There's nothing like uh, really reaching out to someone that, will lift, that lifts us out of that sort of uh, that triggered, activated state of just being locked into a story that's... Re- repeating in our minds and creating a sense of not being safe and being vulnerable. Nothing pulls us out as much as just checking in with a friend or doing something that, um, <coughs> is, that shows a sense of care. Um, gratitude lists, reflecting on virtue, the Buddha called uh, Kaganusati and Silanusati, these are practices that, um, when we reflect on virtuous things we've done, when we reflect on, on things we've done that were kind, uh, we feel less small. We feel more um, uh, like we have an effect in the world. We're less vulnerable, and we're less worried about uh, the things that trigger us. Um, <coughs> Additionally, just the general self-soothing strategies, which are the playing of an instrument, sitting in the sun, all these things keep our... We're not getting rid of the core anxiety. We're addressing it, but we're relaxing it. And we're learning how to be with it. All of these strategies, um, in my experience, I never wake up the next day regretting doing gentle yoga. I, it just has never happened. Like, oh, shit. I just got to call my... Yeah, what happened? Yeah, I did restorative yoga again. 
I'm ashamed. <laughs> what do you? F- I'm feeling shame. <laughs> shame spirals, and you know, no, that never happens. On the other hand, with most of our uh, avoidance strategies, the next day we don't feel that proud. You know, did you go to the party that you were worried about? No, I, I stayed in and I I watched um, Gossip Girl. <laughs> <laughs> That's an homage to music. <laughs> I stayed at home and I watched Gossip Girl because, you know, I could have taken a risk and gone out and confronted my social anxiety, but I felt that tonight, last night wasn't the right time. And it was just better that I, I just not work through it at that moment and just, just steep in my coping strategies that don't work. So... I think you get the point. Uh, The most important thing uh, to summarize, though, is that uh, the strategy begins to really take effect when we let go of the belief that any of these behavioral tendencies are indicative of our core self. They're not. They're reactive strategies to experiences in life that we have ingrained through repetition but anything we can ingrain through repetition, we can release through repetition as well. Nothing is so ingrained in the mind that we can't undo it simply by adding uh, a practice once a day for three weeks. It'll write itself into your striatum. And things that you thought you were never capable of can be ingrained. I never thought when I was feeling the urge to binge eat, which I don't really that frequently feel the need, but once in a while when I'm stressed out, I'll feel the desire for carbs. So I have these ridiculous things called snap peas, which have like no calories to them, and they're kind of disgusting, but whatever. Uh, But now I eat them, and I've ingrained myself, so I don't even seek out anything that's destructive now. I'll just go to you know, the dry kale or snap peas. <laughs> you do it enough, it'll ingrain itself. So um, I thank you for listening. I hope there was something in there worth reflecting on. Thank you for putting up with me and my cold. And next week it'll be another topic. And so we're going to give a minute for those who... Uh,